thanks very much, Janine, for a very generous introduction. Uh, can I acknowledge the Ngunnawal people on whose lands we're gathering today? Uh, Darren Nuna, Darren Ngunnawal, Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawalwadi, Dowdawadi, Dindi, Wangaralinjinyan. I'd acknowledge too any Indigenous people present and commit myself as a member of the government to the implementation in full of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, Janine, thank you for uh, bringing me into a room which I feel combines the two worlds in which I've sought to work, uh, academia and public policy. Uh, terrific to see uh, many, uh, many friends from those worlds here. Uh, particular shout out to Deborah Cobb-Clark, without whom I wouldn't be here in Canberra, since it was uh, Deborah who hired me into the ANU back in 2004. I want to thank the Life Course Centre for hosting today's summit, and particularly for your focus on the causes of disadvantage in Australia. Now, name a popular duo is a common social media caption. I could name Caitlin Ford and Hayley Russo, but the entire Matilda's squad is star-studded. You could name Canberra and Spring as a world-class combination, although perhaps the allergy sufferers would beg to differ. So now I'm going to break the internet and name data and evaluation as the most dynamic duo. They are, as I'm going to argue today, a match made in policy. And the area we're talking about today is a big deal. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, Commonwealth, state and territory governments spend over $60 billion a year on services and programs to support individuals and communities. That encompasses family support, youth programs, childcare services, services for older people, and services for people with a disability. The Life Course Data Initiative, announced in the recent budget, will support investment in places of disadvantage and provide more targeted support. Last September, Amanda Rishworth and I also announced funding for the Australian Bureau of Statistics to increase the frequency with which it collects data on disadvantage. On that note, I'd like to thank David Gruen for his early remarks on improving integrated data sets uh, and for uh, creating complications in all of our minds as we now wrestle with the dual acronyms of MADIP and PLANA. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Amanda Rishworth and thank uh, Taria for delivering her remarks this morning. The story of using data to inform policy has a long lineage. In the mid-1930s, the Australian Government appointed a Commonwealth Advisory Council on Nutrition to undertake the first national survey of nutrition. In the depths of the Great Depression, the Council put together a team of health and agricultural experts, including scientists, researchers, doctors and dentists. The Council conducted two major studies. The first was initiated via a daily questionnaire published in capital city newspapers asking people about the food they ate and purchased each day. Some participants were asked to continue the study for up to a year. The Council ended up analysing the food records of around 1,800 households as part of the dietaries study. That study concluded that Australians of the 1930s were generally well-fed, although there have been questions about the degree of representativeness of the survey. 
For their second study, the council sent a doctor out to examine almost 6,000 children as part of a survey into the nutritional state of children in inland areas. The results of this survey were more concerning. It found what it called a considerable mass of malnutrition, between 13% in rural Victoria to 24% in New South Wales. The findings from those studies led the Council to recommend the formation of a child health division in the Commonwealth Department of Health. It called for medical supervision in kindergarten and primary schools nationally, as well as cutting milk prices. School milk programs partly had their genesis in this data collection process. Today, the linkage between data and policy continues. The National Health and Medical Research Council is currently working with experts to update the Australian Dietary Guidelines. This is based on surveys showing that only one in 20 adults meet their fruit and vegetable daily requirements, and only one in 17 children do so. If data and evaluation are a match made in heaven, then everyone here would agree that the stairway to get there can take some climbing. It can be time-consuming, but worth the effort. Data and evaluation have the power to bring about positive change. And so I want to share a few of my favourite examples. The first relates to my school, the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy data, known as NAPLAN. In 1999, Ministerial Council on Education, Employment, Training and Youth Affairs released the Adelaide Declaration on national goals for schooling in the 21st century. An agreement to progress towards a higher national standard for schooling, including reporting nationally on school achievement. It was a long road, but more than a decade on, in January 2010, the My School data went live for the first time. For the first time, parents could see how their child's school or prospective school stacked up against other similar schools. It allowed school administrators to assess their relative strengths and their relative weaknesses. Over the years, my school reporting has encouraged schools doing well to continue their good work. And for schools looking to improve, they can readily look around and say, well, who are the great role models in teaching maths in my local area that I might learn from? Some of these schools shared their inspirations and lessons learned. One principal said their, their school's success story was all about data, saying that the school was, quote, unaware of severe downwards trends in literacy and numeracy that had been occurring over many years. Another principal said the school identified gaps and restructured intervention programs. Other principals invested in staff programs and professional learning. Another one of my favourite examples of data-driven policy comes from the United States and involves addressing concerns about mass incarceration and the need for criminal justice reform. For three years, from 2006 to 2008, the United States incarcerated more than 1% of all American adults. The human and the economic cost of this was enormous. Launched in 2010, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative used criminal justice data to identify areas of over-incarceration, assess offender risk and estimate future prison populations. And that was critical. 
By understanding those trends, the US policymakers could tailor interventions. They could put in place diversion programs for low-risk offenders, invest in community-based rehabilitation and treatment services. The adoption of that initiative led to significant reductions in prison populations in various states, saving millions of dollars in correctional costs while maintaining public safety. For example, Utah used funds to identify alternative justice pathways that had proved successful in other contexts. Increased use of those pathways reduced the incarceration and directed people to options that decreased recidivism. Oregon undertook a system analysis of the needs of people in the criminal justice process and they eliminated expensive duplications of services while also reducing the reliance on prisons as a means of behavioural health treatment. During the 2010s, the United States experienced a drop in crime and a drop in the incarceration rate. In Republican-run and Democratic-run states, prisons were closed. Even with the increase in crime that occurred during the COVID pandemic, rates of violent crime and rates of imprisonment are substantially lower now than they were 15 years ago. Data and evaluation played a significant role. Third example comes from across the ditch. Integrated data infrastructure, the New Zealand government's data tool, is a success story with more than 700 projects using its microdata in the past decade. In research on social investment in New Zealand, LifeCourse's very own Janine Baxter and Sarah Kolochik said, while the integrated data infrastructure was established and is run independently of the Social Investment Agency, it was fundamentally part of a social investment approach to integration of data into policy and achieving the key goal of identifying and tracking population cohorts over time and the opportunity to evaluate interventions or system-wide policy changes. Integrated data infrastructure works by linking or marrying up administrative data from multiple government agencies. Data covers health, justice, labour market, social development, housing and education. In some cases, going back to 1840. That enables researchers and policy makers to study individuals and populations over time. It facilitates life cycle analysis that provides insights into social trends, life events and policy impacts. All identifying variables are removed to protect the individual's privacy prior to release. And the data also link individuals via taxation data to the Longitudinal Business Database, a microdata resource about New Zealand businesses. The comprehensive data nature of the integrated data infrastructure system provides many opportunities for policymakers to investigate policy impacts across portfolios in the New Zealand government. For example, where people are located, how many there are and how great their need is. In one case, a researcher from the New Zealand Treasury used a combination of data to examine how health conditions such as diabetes, stroke and cancer can affect people's income and employment. In another example, the Minister, Ministry for Children, Oranga Tamaraki, used integrated data infrastructure to better understand which children and which locations were at risk of ending up in the foster care system. <coughs> Efforts were targeted at the locations identified through the data set. 
Like all relationships, data and evaluation can always improve. That's the case for Australia, but there's significant work underway. The Australian Government's Employment Services Program, known as Workforce Australia, provides an example. The program's main objective is to help job seekers find and maintain secure work. Therefore, it's reasonable to measure the success of a program on whether it enhances the chance of a job seeker finding a job and remaining employed. We know from job seeker surveys and employment administrative data whether program participants are employed. But these data don't capture everyone, nor do they always capture the nature of employment. The Department of Employment and Workplace Relations evaluates the impact of the program using exit measures. For example, the department uses exit from employment services and from income support as a proxy for employment. And it uses the duration of the exit as a proxy for employment sustainability. The challenge for policymakers is that those exit measures tell us nothing about job quality. Studies tell us that the level of earnings isn't the only factor that affects job quality, but it's a pretty important one. A study on the quality of employment of young Britons found no universally satisfactory definition of job quality. But it found common traits include a good and fair income, job security and stability, opportunity to progress, a good work-life balance, and one that gives employees a voice. A US study titled Not Just a Job, New Evidence on the Quality of Work, found that 60% of survey respondents self-assessed as having a mediocre or a bad job. This study's list of what constitutes a good job looks pretty similar to the British one. Pay, job security, opportunity for advancement, benefits, stability and dignity. The OECD also uses earnings quality as one of three ways to measure and assess job quality. A decent life needs a decent income. And a decent level of income, for most of us, comes from decent earnings. So where possible, earnings should be included as an outcome measure in evaluating employment services. The inclusion of earnings in evaluating employment services programs can shift the mindset about how these programs are expected to work. There's an opportunity to build on the work first approach that most of the current programs are taking, with an aim to moving job seekers off income support. Using earnings as an outcome allows us to devote more attention and resources to the development of job seekers' human capital, which is a critical factor affecting earnings. For those reasons, earnings data should be added to the data assets held by the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations. This is about enhancing the department's capacity to accurately measure job seekers' labour market outcomes and consequently to conduct more meaningful evaluation of the program's impacts. The Department of Employment and Workplace Relations is working with the Australian Taxation Office and Treasury to explore options to integrate the tax office's earnings data into employment services data. Linking tax data to the unemployment system would only provide information on pay. You wouldn't get security, stability, progression, voice, balance, dignity. But including those tax data and knowing how much someone earns when they leave income support is a pretty important step towards understanding the quality of a job 
that a person has achieved. And in the longer run, better data will improve the quality of the department's evaluation work. More broadly, the establishment of the Australian Centre for Evaluation provides an opportunity for evaluation to improve public programs and save taxpayers money. The centre will promote the use of high quality evaluation across the Australian public service. It'll partner with government agencies to initiate a small number of evaluations each year. And it'll work to improve evaluation capability, practices and culture across government. In particular, the centre will implement multiple randomised controlled trials, focusing not just on large trials, but also on quick and cost-effective experiments. We're inspired by an example from 2004, when the Obama administration pushed for better evidence-based policy via low-cost randomised trials. In some cases, trials can be low-cost because the administrative data has already been collected. In other cases, it's the intervention itself whose costs can be, can be low. For example, a child substance abuse program in Illinois cost about $100,000 over 10 years, but saved around 60 times that much through shorter and fewer foster placements. In another low-cost example, a New York incentive program paid teachers in low-performing schools a bonus if results improved. The school board already collected the outcome measure, so the bonus offered to teachers was the only expense. In this case, the administrative data clearly showed the lack of effect of that particularly complicated teacher incentive pay scheme. We've also seen low-cost randomised trials in Australia. In 2016, Rebecca Goldstein and Michael Hiscox led a trial to evaluate changes in the school attendance and enrolment measure program in the Northern Territory. The program was a kind of welfare sanction. In other words, participants could lose income support payments if they failed to comply with conditions. In this case, failing to address a poor school attendance record. The outlay for this randomised control trial was minimal, required no materials, no travel and a short time for the researchers to pair like students and allocate them to treatment and control groups. The researchers looked at attendance records for both groups and found no significant differences following any of the program interventions. As a result of the evidence, the program was subsequently closed and the money saved. <coughs> Being able to use data for policy development and efficient service delivery is also critical to the operation of the public service. The Australian Bureau of Statistics is doing its part to enhance the value of the, its data to expand capability in government to assess need, efficiency and effectiveness. As David Gruen has said, while there's always more to do, we're making excellent progress improving the quality and timeliness of administrative data and more broadly, integrated data assets. Another priority at the Australian Bureau of Statistics, right behind continuing to produce high quality primary stats about Australia, is the desire to make secondary products like Blade and Plyder, the data set formerly known as MADAP, more useful and informative for understanding ourselves. The government's committed to ensuring the public service has the right capability and tools. Ultimately, this will lead to better policy advice, better regulation, and better services. So let me finish with a quote that I like. The principal value of evaluation is that it improves the decision-making process 
by providing a rational base from which judgments may be made. These wise words aren't new and they don't come from overseas. These were the words of a 1979 report of a parliamentary committee inquiry into evaluation in Australian health and welfare services. The parliamentary committee said, without evaluation, we cannot know whether a particular program is achieving anything at all or whether, for example, its effects are the reverse of the stated objectives. The first chapter of the committee report was devoted to what evaluation is and why evaluation is such a good thing. The four essentials for any program and its evaluation are unchanged today. A statement of need, a statement of objectives or goal, a statement of the criteria against which success will be judged and a database of evidence to measure these criteria. The committee went on to make a series of recommendations to improve data, develop indicators and spend more on health and welfare statistics. The final recommendation sounds a bit like the Australian Centre for Evaluation's objectives. The 1979 committee called for a secretariat to prepare a document outlining the methods available to organisations for the, eva the evaluation of their activities. It recommended that the Department of Health and Social Security provide a consultancy service free of charge to enable organisations receiving health and welfare grants from the federal government to evaluate their own activities. My point is that not a lot has changed in the theoretical approach in almost half a century. Data and improved evaluations have been a long-standing issue and a vital one. What's changed is the data and digital environment, the capacity to generate, synthesise, analyse and share data analytics at scale and in real time has fundamentally shifted. Funnily enough, the 1979 Senate Committee report was titled through a glass darkly, a reference to St Paul's point that we can't see clearly now, but if we get things right, all will be clearer in heaven. So you see, data and evaluation really are a match made in policy heaven. Thanks very much.